Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kapinski, and today my guest is Sue Mel, author of Provenance, winner of the Madville Publishing 2021 Blue Moon Novel Award, Provenance is a Story of Hope in Ruin. The Midwest Book Review says a carefully crafted, impressively intriguing, and fully engaging contemporary novel that will have a special appeal to readers interested in family life fiction. Providence by the gifted author Sumel is especially and unreservedly recommended. And I definitely agree. Sumel oh, is a writer. <laughs> Sumel is a writer from Queens, New York. She earned her MFA from Warren Wilson College and was a 2020 Bookends Fellow at SUNY Stony Brook, Southampton. Her collection of micro essays, Giving Care, was a semifinalist for the Digging Press 2020 Chapbook Prize. Other work has appeared in Brilliant Flash Fiction, Cleaver Magazine, Digging Through the Fat, Jellyfish Review, and many more. Find her at sumelwrites.com and on Twitter at sumel2017. Sue, welcome to A Bookish Home and congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yes, I thought Providence was just such a moving read and the writing was gorgeous. I would love to hear a little bit more about the premise of the novel. And for those that haven't gotten to pick it up yet, could you tell us more about the characters? Sure, sure. Um, so Providence is about a DJ and he's a 57 year old former bookstore manager who's still grieving the early death of his wife, Belinda. And he spent the last three years and all the money from her insurance policy collecting guitars and composing music. And he's kept on shopping all the Brooklyn stoop sales and flea markets that he and Belinda had always enjoyed. Um, But when his building is unexpectedly sold, he's broke and takes refuge in his younger sister Connie's half-finished basement. Um, She lives in this Hurley, which is the small Hudson Valley town where they grew up. And he's expecting to have a comfortable and solitary retreat. But instead, he finds himself all caught up in her troubling divorce. Uh, He gets drafted as a caregiver for her 11-year-old daughter, Elise. And he's completely unable to face or pay for a storage unit that's crammed full of hundreds of vinyl records and every other scrap of his life with Belinda. He's a great giver of gifts, and uh, he gives his niece a marbled glass egg, a pork pie hat, and one of his prized guitars. But what's really being asked of him isn't to give the perfect object. Uh, It's for him to give of himself. Yeah, and I love watching his character sort of evolve throughout the book. And I think the family dynamics are so real and interesting. And sort of it got me wondering kind of what was the initial inspiration for the book and what intrigued you at the start about maybe this character as he was becoming real to you? Um, So I did um, know someone who I am no longer friends with, um, but who who was in that situation that um, his wife had passed away and, and he could not, he could not get over it. And he just kind of uh, decidedly, you know, spent through all the money from her insurance. And um, then the last I'd heard of him was that, you know, this building where he'd lived for over 25 years had been sold. Um, so I tried to imagine what might become of his life once he was still in this situation and ran out of cash. 
mm -hmm. and that's where it's, that's where it began. Um, I, I knew that he had a sister somewhere upstate New York, but um, but she's completely made up, um, as, as is his character as it goes forward. But the premise I did steal from somebody's actual life. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, though. It's always kind of fun to hear where writers are taking snippets from real life and kind of fictionalizing. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the meaning behind the title? Um, well, provenance um, most often refers to, or I don't know about most often, but often refers to where a musical instrument came from, where it was made, who the maker was inside a violin, for example, there's a, uh, a label that um, has a date and the maker and, and then where it was made. And it also, it's the same is true for antiques. It's, it's the idea of where something comes from. And I really like the, I, I love antiques. <laughs> so I like that the, there's an antique store and, um, yes. and, but the whole idea of he's sort of, DJ is kind of grappling with this overabundance of stuff and it's kind of paralyzing him. Where did you kind of tap into that headspace? And I'm curious too, like, are you somebody who is the total opposite, like, a big like minimalist or do no, you struggle I, with hanging I, on to things or yes I cannot throw anything away I, oh, I mean I am not you know DJ really borders on being a hoarder um so it's like taken to an extreme but um but I have a lot of trouble letting go of things I'm very attached to sentimental objects you know tickets from concerts or stuffed animals from when I was a kid. I can't, <laughs> let, I can't let anything go. It's hard. It's hard to let go. And, uh, but yeah, I felt like that palpable anxiety is he's got like the overflowing storage locker and, and, you know, I was looking back at the book today and it just struck me too. I don't know why I didn't have the number in my mind, but that it was a hundred thousand dollars that he kind of blew through. And it's sort of, he sort of even, is aware and describes it as kind of almost like deliberately spending through the money. Like, could you talk a little bit about like his headspace and how you kind of tried to just develop his character and his motivations and what he's dealing with? Yeah. So, so he's a guy that really, that, that totters on the edge. Um, and he's, he's kind of in a way willfully self-destructive, but he's always, had some kind of a safety net, um, which, and that safety net has usually been the woman that he's been involved with, you know, either Belinda, his wife, or, or um, in the book, his good friend, Tracy, that he relies on for practically everything. And even now he moves in with his sister. Um, but he also, um, he's a very uh, sort of driven by a lot of guilt one kind of one of the central factors uh, or one of the central things that affects him is that uh, a brief affair that he had midway through his marriage, even though his wife, you know, turns out to have been, you know, the true love of his life. Um, he just feels, again, I guess it's like a willful sort of self-destruction, but then he can't really bring himself to go all the way down. Um, mm -hmm. And so he's, he's always kind of testing that water, like how far can he go? Was there a part of, um, of the novel that was 
kind of the most difficult for you to craft either a particular sort of like stage of the book or a particular character? Um, well, one of the main concerns was that um, he's a very passive guy. Um, so was trying to find, you know, where in his life did he have some kind of agency? Um, because otherwise, in a way, the reader is like, oh, not going to be sympathetic to somebody who just, you know, doesn't take care of himself or, or the people around him, you know, but he, he did really take care of Belinda. That was the thing he, you know, when she was dying, he really rose to that occasion. Um, so I was looking for places in, in his life, either past and present where he could, um, show, a, you know, where I could show <laughs> a different side of who he was. And, um, and I think one of the challenges w- was, was really communicating his, his charm, his particular charm and how he has, um, always managed to have a woman take care of him. Um, which was sort of also the puzzle for me that that was true of the person that I knew that he was uh, originally based on. Um, was he had all these like amazing women who were interested <laughs> in him. And I was like, including myself, you know, at the time. And I was like, what, what is it about him? Um, so it was kind of get, finding a way to, to get that across in a, in a believable way. Yeah. Well, I'm curious too, to hear a little bit more about your writing journey. Did the book take a long time to write? Did it take a while to get published, did it come together quickly? What was what was that all like? Um, kind of a long, a long story. Uh, started out as a short story when I was in graduate school, um, and uh, I was in a semester. I was supposed to be writing something else entirely. I was supposed to be revising a novella, and I was kind of stuck. And I sent my advisor this first eighteen pages of a short story, and I was like, ah, I don't know, like if this is even anything. And she was like, forget the novella. I love this character. (laughs) (laughs) She said, you should just run with this. Um, So I did. And I kept on thinking, oh, okay. So I see where this story is going to end. I always had this idea of an arc of um, DJ, not necessarily redeeming his own life so much, but that he could, you know, not, not redeeming, but, but really making something of his life, but that he could still be a significant person in the life of his niece so that was always the arc that I was picturing. Um, and when I finally got to like 30, 40 pages, 50 pages, I had to admit that I was no longer writing a story. And um, then I had to figure out how to write a novel, <laughs> which I had Ooh. never <laughs> I had never intended. Um, so I had finished about the first 100 pages was, was my thesis. It took me about another year and a half to finish the draft on my own. And then I sent it around and um, was predominantly ghosted. I think I got one re- rejection. Um, <laughs> and then everybody else, I just didn't hear anything. And I was thinking of uh, hiring a developmental editor. And then I also applied to Bookends, um, which is a program at uh, SUNY Stony Brook in um, New York. That, uh, it's a mentorship program where you revise a uh, full draft of a novel. So I applied to that and was accepted. And um, during that 
in bookends, you work in a small pod with two other writers for the first half of the year, revising your work and exchanging work with each other. And then the second half, you also work um, with a uh, a mentor who's a you know successful writer. Um, and I worked with Amy Hempel on the book. And what happened when I got to the initial workshop for the fellowship is well, long story short, as I ended up completely rewriting the book. Oh, wow. I kept less than 2,000 words, um, two short scenes and some description and a little bit of his interiority, but everything else was completely redone. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to hear a little more about bookends. I, I looked it up after reading your bio. I hadn't heard of it before, and um, there's some great mentors, too. Like one of my, oh, yeah. I love Christina Baker Klein. Um, yes. I've had her on. She's one of my favorite authors. I didn't realize she was part of that. And, um, and is, it, is it mostly remote, I read? Um, well, so initially the program was, you know, pre-COVID, you would go um, to the um, Southampton Writers Conference. That's where it would kick off. You'd have a 10-day workshop there, and you'd meet all your cohort. And the cohort was usually was somewhere between 6 and 12 writers. Um, and they very carefully, your acceptance is based on being able to be, your book being able to be matched up with two other writers who have either similar issues or, you know, opposing strengths to what you have so that you all will be able to help each other move your work forward. Um, and so, and then you would work um, independently by, well, it was sort of before zoom, you know, I don't know what we did, some other kind of FaceTime or something. <laughs> cause what did we all do before zoom? <laughs> yeah. And then um, there's a big meeting. Everybody meets in January and that's where you meet your, you would meet your mentor in person and then you would work with them by email um, or phone, uh, depending on their choice. And then you would go again to the conference the following summer. Um, but so cool. So my year, we started in person, and then it was COVID. Um, mm. So we started in person. We met in January, and then it was COVID. And so that the the end, the graduation was remote. Um, and then the next couple of years were totally remote. And then, um, and now I think this year, this year I know they met in Southampton for a shorter period of time. Um, but so I think they're doing some kind of a combination of remote and um, in person. That's very cool. And so for writers listening who maybe are interested in, you know, I know bookends um, seems like an option. I know other, um, like I'm thinking of Grub Street near me kind of seems like they have something similar. Um, what was the most beneficial part of that fellowship for you? Was it like connecting with other writers that became really invaluable? Was it your mentor? Was it like having the accountability? Uh, I would say it's a combination of all three of those things. Mm -hmm. um, I always, um, I always do better on the one-on-one -on -one. for some reason. That's always more helpful to me. Um, but, but working in the, in the pod, you're also responsible for the other person's book. I mean, it's not just like, Oh, you're reading a few pages. You read the whole drafts, you know, as they're moving along. Um, and you, you know, are expected to be as invested in those characters as if they were your own. Um, so that that I think really makes for a lot of growth because it's not your book in a way. So you have a certain kind of freedom, you know, from 
from a blindness that can occur by your own work, um, but that then you can take what you see in somebody else's work and apply it to your own. Um, and it was great to just be able to bounce around, you know, plot ideas with someone um, yeah. who really understood the whole picture of what you were trying to do. Yeah, that's great. I love that idea of the the pod approach of like a really much smaller group. That sounds really beneficial. Well, you know, I'm curious. So this book wound up being um, a novel, oh, right. obviously, even though it didn't yeah. start out that way. Is that sort of what you, I'm curious kind of what you envision going forward, like continuing to write novels, doing a mixture, kind of what's, what do you think is next? Kind of a mixture. Um, uh, I've done a, been doing a couple of different things. The first thing I did after I finished the novel, I was like, ah, what, like, what do I do now? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I had um, a half a dozen stories that I had published early on and always with the idea of a collection. And what I ended up doing is that I wrote into the secondary characters. Um, so then I created a... Uh, kind of a trio of story suites. So within each suite, the um, the characters are, are linked and the stories aren't necessarily all from one character's point of view and they move across time. Um, and so that I've been oh, sending cool. around and I don't, I, there's a good possibility that that's going to get published, although it's not definitive yet. So I can't really say, yeah. <laughs> but well, as exciting. Possible, I would definitely like to read that. Yeah. And then I also have been writing some nonfiction, actually, that um, the the Giving Care that you mentioned in the intro actually did end up winning another contest and was published by um, the Chestnut oh. Review. Yeah. Oh, congrats. Um, that's great. Thank you. So that's kind of uh, uh, right now I've been fooling around with something that is either a novel or link stories. I'm not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to well, write another novel, but it's such a vast, um, it's a big undertaking. I, I mean, I know yeah. a, a lot, I hear a lot of people on your show, they're like, well, I'm in this, in this series of novels. I'm like, oh my God, how do people, <laughs> I, some people have lots of ideas. I have like a single idea, you know, serial single ideas. Well, I, I'll be excited to read whatever comes next. And that leads me to one of my other questions. I'm just kind of curious these days what your writing routine is like. Are you somebody who has a really um, like highly structured routine? Is it kind of like just hitting a certain word count or what kind of what's that like for you? Um, well, I am uh, have been for the past few years a uh, um, primary caregiver for my mom who has dementia. So I had moved back home. I'm living with her. Um, so I was always a very uh, structured writer in that I would write first thing in the morning. Um, and I've always been a freelancer up until now that I'm now I'm not working now. I'm just caring for my mom. Yeah. Uh, so I would either write for an hour before I went to a gig. Um, or if I wasn't working, then I would aim for a three-hour window. That seems to be sort of my max focus of concentration for writing new work. If I'm revising something, I could I can go longer. Um, but so now it's not always feasible for me to write first thing. I have to take care of a bunch of things um, right. before I can really. Although most recently I've started trying to get up even earlier and cram, you know, 
I always do better to write the very first thing. As the day goes on, I get more and more critical. There's more <laughs> critical voices in my head. <laughs> yep. So, so the closer I can be to just coming out of sleep, the um, the more freedom I have on the page. Um, yeah. So I, well, I do. Tr- I try to write every day. Word count. The word count thing. Um, when I was in the fellowship, I did have to keep to a word count because you know, uh, you were expected to finish your draft, you know, a full revision before you met with your mentor. I mean, you know, people work at different paces, but that was the idea would, that was the best opportunity would be to have a full revised draft for them to look at. Um, So I did keep a word count then. And sometimes now I keep a much lower word count. So, uh, you know, (laughs) a little less pressure on myself. Um, but I tend to thrive with a deadline and I do also, uh, find it easier to be working towards something, whether it's, you know, a contest deadline or a specific publication that I'm interested in, um, or something like a chat book or a project. Um, I do better with that. Well, and giving yourself grace too, I'm sure, because it's just, I've had, I've had family members that have um, been caregivers and it's, it's definitely a lot. So, um, yeah, it's a yeah. very tough season of life. So, um, you know, just getting any writing in is impressive. So thank you. Yes. Sometimes yeah. I feel that way too. I'm like, yes. yeah. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear too about your reading life. So when you're not busy writing, um, what do you like to read? And have you, do you have any book recommendations you'd want to share? I do. Uh, most recently, the books that I, two books that I, uh, that I really loved are um, Whereabouts by Jhumpa Lahiri, um, oh. which won a Pulitzer Prize, which I didn't know about when I picked it up. Um, that's, it's a novel written in short fragments. Um, which is something that I'm interested in, kind of a collage structure. And the other book I really loved is nonfiction. It's by Catherine Schultz, um, who writes a lot for The New Yorker. And it's called Lost and Found. And um, it's, a, it's kind of a memoir uh, about the loss of her father and also her falling in love with the woman who became her life partner. Um, and then I have been rereading, this is one of my favorite books of all time, really, is Joan Silber's Improvement, which is also um, a novel told from told in stories from multiple points of view. Oh, nice. I, um, I'll have to link to all those. I haven't um, read any of those yet, so I'll have to, oh, good. Have to pick them up. Yeah, it's always nice to get, get some good recommendations of what to read next. Well, I really hope that listeners um, have not checked out Providence yet. They go and pick it up um, from their local bookstore, order it online, you know, get their holds in for their local library. And actually, too, I meant to ask, is there an audiobook version of Providence? There is not yet. Um, there's oh. a possibility of it, um, but nothing. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. Because I could digital... see that being a nice audio read. Um, yes. Yeah. That would be great. I would love that. Um, yeah. Um, my publisher is looking into, uh, there were two other, I had won a prize and then there were two other finalists and she's looking into um, getting funding to do audiobooks for all three. Oh, kind of nice. like a like a package. Yeah. Yeah. I'll keep an eye out for that. I just feel like 
just hearing DJ's voice and everything. I don't know. I just think it would make a really great audiobook. Um, no, thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, congratulations again on the book and best of luck with um, all the writing projects coming up. Thanks again for taking the time to come on. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. It was great to talk to you. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. And there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, a Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home. I'm also sharing there all the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports A Bookish Home and independent bookstores, so it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org slash shop slash abookishhome. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.